since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You may be seated. Would you pray with me one more time and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, we are gathered before your throne today as a needy people who are in need of this, your redeeming love. So come by your word, Lord Jesus, and, and deal with sin and our brokenness and our fears and lead us into the truth of the gospel that we might be healed by it, renewed by it, and encouraged by it. Deal with us as we are, but don't leave us as we are. Change us so that we might be more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, we find ourselves uh, in the midst of a gubernatorial election, and the ads are increasing on uh, TV, and debates are going on, visits are being made, and and the candidates are, are working hard to make the case that they are the the best uh, qualified for their role as your governor. And so they lay out all the things that they've done and all, all of the things that they're good at and all the great accomplishments they've made um, in their lives. Their CV is laid out so you would vote for them. Well, here's where the Apostle Paul lays out his CV, his resume for us in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, if you've got your Bible, verse 18, here's how he ends this. Remember my chains. He's writing from prison. Here's why you should listen to him. He's in prison. Don't forget this. The thing that should bring shame to the gospel is the thing that causes glory to Jesus Christ. Remember my chains. What would cause a man who had grown up educated, well-educated from a middle class, probably upper middle class family because of the access to education that he had, extremely moral, religiously zealous, politically esteemed, what would cause a man to take pride in his wrongful imprisonment and to tell this little church in Colossae, I want you to remember something about me. Remember my chains. Verse 24 of chapter 1. What would cause a man to say something like this? This is crazy speak, by the way. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Not just sufferings, but for your sake. This brings me great joy to be in prison and suffer for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up What's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. My ambition, I'm, I'm glad I'm in prison. Here's my ambition. There are things in the church that need to happen for 
Christ to be glorified. And I'm going to fill those things up until they overflow. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to suffer for your sake. It's my ambition in my life. I'll tell you what my ambition in life is. New car, nice house, vacation, ease, comfort. But here's what the Apostle Paul had found. And I'd long for me, uh, me to find this, for us to find this. Here's what he found. He found in Christ something that was more supreme, more satisfying than the circumstances of his life. Here's what we're going to see in our study of the book of Ephesians. Christ is enough. He is enough. And when encountered in his supremacy, lives are changed, turned upside down. So the first question that we have to ask in our study of the book of Colossians is just the basic questions of biblical interpretation. Who, what, where, when? If you sit down with any book of the Bible, you need to ask these questions. If you're going to learn to read your Bible, they are written to a particular people and you need to ask this question. Who was the original audience? It grounds our interpretation of Scripture. A lot of times when I see people kind of going off taking the Bible in wild tangents that really hurt their lives, it is because they have forgotten to ask the first question. What did this mean to the first people who heard it? Who, what, where, when? So we can look at verses 1 and 2. Paul starts his letter to the Colossians in a very typical way. We call this letter an epistle. Epistle is just Greek for letter, but it reminds us that Paul was using a common letter writing style common to the first century Roman world. It included a very common greeting, a form, you might say. You know, there's a form to a thank you note. Uh, Children, when you write a thank you note, if you're writing thank you notes, and you should be, there's a form to it. Thank you. This is is, uh, so-and-so. This is thank you. want to thank you for the gift. I appreciate you. Sign your name. Basic form. There's forms to things that we write. Well, there was a form to letter writing in the first century world. And it started basically this way. An introduction from the author telling who it's from, naming the recipients, and then a greeting. And this under, helps us understand why Paul starts this letter this way. You have to take this into consideration. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... That's to whom, from whom, and then to whom. So first, it's written by the Apostle Paul to a particular people, to a group of people who have been gathered by Jesus Christ to the church in Colossae. So he writes, Paul, Timothy are in Rome together, having been imprisoned by the gospel, and he's writing a letter to a church. So Paul, an apostle, of Christ Jesus. Now, apostle literally means, the most literal translation is sent one, acting as an emissary, an official, sent by the king to deliver a message for the people that he's addressing. Paul recognizes that he comes, not just these aren't his ideas that he's delivering, he's coming as one who's speaking officially on behalf of Jesus Christ to his 
church. Now, the apostles were 13 in number, 12 originally. One died, uh, one killed himself after uh, betraying Jesus. One was added back to get the number to 12. And then Paul's the 13th apostle. 13 apostles being given to deliver God's word to the church. Then they cease to be as an office. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He didn't take this role on to himself. He recognizes that this was by the will of God. God had called him to be an apostle, and he had a very unique experience that led to this. And Paul and Timothy are writing this letter to the church of Colossae. They had been ministry companions. Paul and Timothy had joined forces when they uh, were in the town of Ephesus for three years. Uh, during Paul's third missionary journey. And this is when the church in Colossae was founded. Paul never visited this church. He's probably writing this letter in the early 60s uh, AD. Uh, The church was probably founded during his time in Ephesus. And uh, so that means this is a young church, right? Probably five or six years had passed since this church was planted. And then Paul's writing to address it. So that's the who. The first is from who to whom. The second part of the who. Who, what, where, when question. To whom. Second part here. Here's here's where dating is important. We date this right around time. Obviously when Paul's in prison, he refers to it twice in this letter. And he's writing um, from his imprisonment in Rome. But he's, he's, he's addressing a church that was planted by Epaphras. We read this in verse 7. Just as you learned of the gospel from Epaphras, our fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So Epaphras had traveled to Ephesus where he had heard the gospel. The gospel falling on his ears. He's converted to faith in Christ and then takes this back to his hometown. Right? He'd, he was concerned to see the gospel of Jesus Christ go back to his hometown, Colossae. Now, Colossae is a small town. Here's the to whom. Colossae is a small town um, on a little river in what today is known as Turkey. Then was the province of Asia Minor. Phrygia is known as it had been a has it was during this time a has been town it was once the it town of the region the roman troops had trampled through found it a lovely place made it a a a booming economic center of the area because they fell in love with it as strategic importance on a very important river it had rich fertile soil because there were volcanic activity all around and so this great economic hub had grown up in Colossae but then it had been overshadowed by a few towns to the north one author puts it this way it had neither a lar- it was at this time neither a large nor important town though it had bore- formerly been both it had been upstaged by its near neighbors in Laodicea 10 miles away to the north and Heropolis 6 miles beyond that it was once a place of great prominence and now had become a backwoods small town Does that sound familiar those 
of you who've grown up in Colombia, you remember the day when Colombia was the economic hub of our five-county region. People came from all over to Colombia, but slowly got upstaged by two neighbors to the north. Now, who is it? But I think this is the way we feel most of the time. Defeated, left behind, insignificant, unimportant. Nobody listens to us. We don't make a difference in the world. What is our place? Have we been forgotten? This was what the church in Colossae was having to deal with. We can resonate with this, I think. And here's what the church in Colossae, so if that's the who, the what. The Colossae, Colossian church was facing a very serious problem. It's actually a pretty typical problem. A problem that I think most churches and most days and most times and places deal with. And it's a constant, it's this constant way that the culture creeps into the church. And what was going on in the, in the church of Colossae is that they had taken a little bit of the Bible and they had mixed it with a little bit of Jewish belief system and a little bit of Greek and Roman pagan culture and they'd kind of mixed it together and come up with their own man-made religion that was leading to a completely different way of living life. They had constructed man-made religion like a two-year-old making a building out of Legos. A little bit here, take this color, put it here. Kind of looks like a building when you get done, but it's it's kind of made out of a... There's no consistency to it. It's not all that beautiful because it's just so pieced together. And this is what they had done. They had constructed what Paul calls man-made religion. Religion that had no power because it had not come from God. And so twice in this passage, Paul refers to the gospel as the most true thing. Verse 5. Of this... The gospel of Jesus Christ you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And then again in verse 6, when he tells the Colossian church that they had heard the word of God, it had come to them in truth, it had come to them. It wasn't something that they constructed. And when it came to them, they experienced the power of God through it. It was stable and sure, unlike something that we would construct ourselves and because of this it's God's truth and it's stable and we can build our lives on it shortly after 9-11 David Brooks it was really interesting I sat down with a bunch of um, a bunch of college students and he just asked them um, what had changed for them after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and almost to a person they said this We have been taught how to deconstruct truth claims, but no one has ever taught us how to construct a reality. And what was difficult for them was that their world was so shaken by the terrorist attacks of 9-11 that their world had literally been deconstructed and nothing remained stable, something that they could build a reality on. And so here's the gospel. 
It comes to us as the word of truth and comes to us from God. Therefore, we can construct a reality that we can see all of life through and build our lives on. This is where Paul is going to take us. The gospel is immensely practical. And if you think of it as just the set of truths up here that you kind of assent to or the ticket through which you enter into the kingdom of God and then just kind of figure out how to walk on your own way, the gospel is the word of God and truth to us through which we got to learn to see all of life. When all of life is uncertain, when trials come in and we don't know where to turn, When the next step forward is unclear for us, here's where we can always revert back to. The word of the gospel is from God and is true and is the most stable thing I have in my life. One of the things that validates the truthfulness of the gospel is its ability to grow. And this is where Paul goes next. No matter what the gospel as God's word to us faces, it always moves forward with great power. Verse 6, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now again, remember, Paul is writing with this kind of confidence having been wrongly imprisoned in Rome for the sake of the gospel and with confidence he's saying look what's happening it's marching forward and it's going into all the world and is bearing fruit evidenced by the fact that to this small town far from the hub of missionary activity in Ephesus the gospel was brought by Epaphras and a church grew up And Paul uses an interesting verb construction in the original language here to speak of this, right? So so verbs in most languages, English is a little different, but verb in most languages have voices and a voice kind of tells us who's doing the work. So you could say something like in English, you'd say David hit the ball. David was doing the work. The ball was receiving it. He acted on the ball. Or you could say another thing, a different picture. David was hit by the ball. The ball was doing the work. It hit David and and did something to him. He was passive in that. And in between, there's the middle voice, which sometimes means something's acting on it. And sometimes it's kind of strange. It kind of goes back and forth. It's hard to translate in English. And this is what Paul's doing. So this is what he's saying. The word of truth, the gospel, is being acted on by God. And therefore, the gospel itself is performing an action on us. God uses the means of the gospel to bear fruit. It itself, because God is asking, is causing growth in the world. He's causing it to bear fruit in the lives of the most disadvantaged, the most broken, the most unfaithful, the most unlikely people. It breaks through the walls that the self-righteous and proud put up. It breaks through the barriers of brokenness for the most destitute. None of us are so good that we don't need the gospel to bear fruit in our lives. None of us are so bad that the gospel can't bear fruit in our lives because God is acting on it 
to cause it to grow and bear fruit. And it crosses every single boundary. Because it's not only bearing fruit in Colossae, it is doing so in all the world. The gospel doesn't just bear fruits where it's accepted culturally. It doesn't just bear fruit where it's where it seems to kind of take advantage. It doesn't just go with the middle class. It doesn't go with the upper class. It doesn't go with the lower class. It doesn't go with Americans. And it doesn't go with the Soviets. It doesn't go with Russia. It doesn't go away in the Middle East. There is no culture through which the gospel does not break and bear fruit. And there is no boundary in your life that will keep God from causing his gospel to bear fruit. It's not parochial, it's not cultural, and therefore it divides, it does not divide, it unites across all barriers. It's a beautiful picture in the book of Revelation. We see this, we kind of get a glimpse into what the world will look like when it's perfected, when Jesus comes back and all that's been broken by sin is done away with. And what do you see? Every nation, tribe, tongue, ethnicity, language being represented before the king who through his gospel bear fruit in all the world and has gathered for himself a new people. None of us here today who belong to Jesus Christ are exempt from this. It is broken into all of our lives in the most unlikely way at the most unlikely times when we were least ready for it. God caused it to bear fruit. And now we are in Christ Jesus. Last thing where we're going. This is the kind of fruit the gospel bears. It bears fruit because it is God's word. It is the most true thing. Because it is the most true thing, it speaks to our most basic needs and transforms us at our most basic level. Remember this. We heard this in verse 3. This is the beginning of his letter. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This is verses 3 through 8 is Paul kind of inviting the Colossian church into his prayer life, into his prayer closet. This is what I've been praying for you and I'm praying this. I'm thanking God because he caused something in you. He did something in you and, it, and God has changed you. So I'm going to thank God. I'm going to thank God because he did this. And I'm going to thank you because you did this. You're not a, you're not a great church that can, can say, look how awesome we are. Look at what we've done. They're thanking God because he has made you a great church. And so he thanks them for three things. And he uses, thanks God, for the three things that he's produced in the church of Colossae by his gospel. And he uses three words that he uses frequently to speak of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. He thanks God for these three things because these are three things that God has produced. And he does, though, in a very particular order. Verse 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this You have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Verse 4, faith, hope, and love. 
He thanks them that God has produced in them faith in Christ Jesus through the means of the hope laid up for them in heaven and that faith, hoping in the work of Christ, has produced in them a love for all the saints. That order is so important. When we lose that order, we lose the whole connection to the gospel. Faith and laid, hope laid up for heaven that produces a love for the saints. You can almost backtrack that. If I don't find love being produced in my life, it's because I've no longer, I've sort of lost hold of the gospel. For I'm getting frustrated. My life is growing cold. I'm, I'm more angry than, than patient because I've lost hold of the hope laid up for me in Christ Jesus. Here's what faith is. Faith is like an arm that reaches out and grabs hold of something. In this case, Christ Jesus. But you always have this arm reaching out. I mean, faith is, we kind of talk like faith is this Christian thing, like this churchy thing, but it's like, it's basic to humanity. We're all entrusting ourselves to something. Right? We've all reached out with our hands and grabbed hold of something to deliver us and give us hope. That could be like uh, students, you might think, you know, if I can just get out of my parents' house, get a college degree and, and uh, get a good career, then I can do and be who I want to be. Well, just that's your faith is in that pathway. Or you might think if uh, only these circumstances would change, then my life would be better. Well, you've reached out with your arm of faith and attached it to the changing of your circumstances. Faith is just something that we all do. It's an arm that reaches out and grabs hold of something. Here, in order to experience the power of God, the arm of faith has to reach out and grab hold of Christ Jesus, particularly here in Colossians chapter 1, the hope that is laid up for us in Christ. Now, hope in the Bible means differently than we commonly use it. I think we usually use hope as wishful thinking. So I could say, I hope the Titans win the Super Bowl this year. Well, that's probably just wishful thinking. But hope is, is fundamentally different in the Bible. Hope and confidence go together. So if you look down at verse 23 of chapter 1, you'll see this language. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, right? Stable and steadfast, right? It, hope is securing. It, it stabilizes us. Because it's attached to certainty in the work of another. Jesus did this and it's mine. I'm guaranteed it. I'll receive it one day. That's the whole reason he lived 30 years and ministered three and then died, rose from the dead so he could secure for me a real hope. Not wishful thinking that maybe one day the Titans might win the Super Bowl, but the, we just experienced a royal wedding. And there was a hope at the end of that for Meghan Markle. There was a period, though, between her engagement and the day she was married when she knew that a new life for her was coming one day. It was guaranteed when that ring was put on, but she had to wait. She knew that there was royalty, there was Tendance, there was riches for her, but there was a time when that promise was just hope. But it wasn't wishful thinking like, 
my team's going to win. It's like guaranteed. A promise has been made. I'm just waiting for it. Because faith reaches out, grabs hold of Jesus Christ, who has finished a work of salvation, who has gained for me the riches of heaven, who has secured my place before the Father, who has given me his righteousness, that hope is laid up for me in Christ. Faith just grabs hold of it. And so it produces love. Twice, actually, in this passage, love comes out of faith that lays hold of hope in Christ. Faith in Christ, in the hope laid up for us in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and growing. It's not stagnant, it's growing. And as a result, verse 8 the gospel came to them, verse end of verse 7, through Epaphras, the faithful minister of Christ, on your behalf, and he has made known to us. Its words come back to us of your love in the Spirit. Paul's hearing reports back. The people in Colossae are learning to love each other and love God more deeply because their faith reached out and laid hold of Jesus. Let me close with this. We're coming to this table today. And you see, this table is where faith, hope, and love really meet together for us. We come by faith. Our arm reaches out and we grab the elements and take the promises of Christ to our lips. We smell them. They're real. Hope. We know that this table is a temporary meal for us because there will be a day when Jesus returns and this temporary meal that is by faith will turn into the great wedding feast of the Lamb and we will see all that is already ours by sight. We dine with our King at the new heavens and new earth, but it's also the table of love. This is not just a private, this is not a private ritual. We do this in the context of worship. You know, the early church, I'd love to see us start doing this again. The early church would actually have a, a meal after the meal where they would all sit down together as a family and, and love and cherish their time having laid hold of the hope of the gospel. Faith, hope, and love. Faith in Christ. Hope in the future that is ours. Love. That's what this table and this gospel should be producing in us. That's a reality that can be constructed because it comes to us as the most true thing. We can build our lives and we will see the ways that we can build our lives on this true word from God. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we uh, come to the table today, we come rejoicing in this. Jesus Christ is enough. He has done all that is necessary and there are places in our lives that we need you to break through and produce growth, produce love, compassion and tenderness. Thank you, oh Father, that you do not leave us to ourselves. Help us to construct our lives on the truthfulness of your word. Bear fruit here and across the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.